The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. From the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798 to the so-called Patriot Act of 2001, one of the perennial questions of American history is how the government conducts its wars within the framework of its constitutional authority. The Civil War is doubly interesting in this regard because both sides fought under very similar constitutions. We'll look today at how Abraham Lincoln, Jefferson Davis, and Americans North and South used their constitutions to justify or condemn secession, martial law, emancipation, and states' rights. We'll have that discussion with our guest, Professor Mark E. Neely, Jr., winner of the Pulitzer Prize and McCabe Greer Professor of Civil War History at Penn State University. Join us for a discussion of his recent book, Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation, Constitutional Conflict in the American Civil War. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today on a Friday afternoon in 2012, spring of 2012, from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, here on the third floor of the Brewster Building home of the history department and various other departments, but as always not speaking for the department or the university or the UNC system or anybody else, just me, and likewise my guest will represent no one else. It's important to do legal disclaimers on a show when today we'll be talking about legal issues. Well, it is uh, also appropriate that today we'll be talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln to some extent and his constitutional views during the Civil War. Over the past week, uh, last Friday, we didn't do a live show. I had the opportunity to visit with Abraham Lincoln, uh, or actually several dozen clones of Abraham Lincoln, at the annual meeting of the Abraham Lincoln Presenters Association, the ALP, uh, meeting in Decatur, Illinois. And I was invited to speak to them about, uh, obviously, Lincoln-related issues. 
and had uh, as always a good time. This is the second time I've been to one of these conventions. They are in some ways quite surreal events, as you can imagine, a room full of Abes, many of them with their attendant Marys, uh, certainly for the uh, banquet on Saturday night, all decked out in their 19th century finery. Some of them look remarkably like Abraham Lincoln. Some of them mm, really don't, but they are all enthusiastic about the topic, and they all uh, uh, know a lot. Um, well, I should say many of them know a lot. All of them seem to want to learn more. It was uh, a pleasure being with them and, and sharing their enthusiasm for the topic. Uh, and it was nice, especially a number of them mentioned that they had read Did Lincoln Own Slaves, uh, which... I wrote following my experience uh, with public audiences asking questions about Lincoln. That's what they encounter every day, and they find that particular book helpful uh, for, for finding answers to questions that they get. If there were 100,000 Lincoln presenters, they don't like to be called impersonators, if there were 100,000 Lincoln presenters in the United States today, I would have written a bestseller because they like that book. Uh, but... Uh, there aren't that many, so I'm, I'm still keeping my day job here at East Carolina, where I do get to talk about Lincoln and other things. Uh, among the other things we'll be talking about with you over the next few weeks and months on Civil War Talk Radio, next week we have Earl Hess. Uh, he's at Lincoln Memorial University, but he writes about the war itself. He's written uh, a controversial book about the rifle musket, and most recently a new book on the Civil War in the West. We haven't talked Western theater enough lately, I think, so uh, he'll be joining us. Then uh, it'll be commencement here at ECU the following week, no show. But on May 11th, Larry Kreiser will bring us back to the Eastern Theater with his new book on the Second Corps, the Army of the Potomac. Uh, May 18th, Thomas Sabatke, who has written for uh, the thought-provoking article on morality in the Civil War in North and South Magazine, will be with us. Uh, that'll bring us to Memorial Day, another day off, uh, if only... The, the state were so generous with its holidays. Uh, in June, Keith Erickson has written a unique book about Abraham Lincoln or about the history of Lincoln, and it's hard to find something new to say on that topic. Then uh, June 8th, we've got Mark Dunkleman, an old friend of the show, returning to talk uh, about his work uh, marching with Sherman. He follows uh, the route of Sherman's march with some of the soldiers from the New York Regiment he has studied for much of a lifetime. Uh, and that gets us pretty far in the future. Then there's a Civil War Historians Conference uh, the following week, and we're getting near the end of the season in June. So lots of good things coming up. A uh, quick peek ahead to the fall uh, season when we return uh, in late August or early September. Christian McWhorter will be talking with us about Civil War music. Uh, John Michael Priest will join us uh, before the 150th anniversary of Antietam to talk about that battle. So we've got some interesting shows lined up well ahead. You can keep on top of all this at www.impedimentsofwar.org. It's all one word, Impediments of War, uh, where Mark Gaffney keeps us informed on what's going on with the show. While you're there, you can donate uh, to the show if you're so moved uh, to help me buy the books that I get to, to read and, and talk with you about. This week's book was generously sent by UNC Press. They're very good about that. Uh, but sometimes the presses are recalcitrant, and I have to actually spend money on books 
which I hope you are all doing as well. Uh, anyway, sending uh, uh, PayPal donations at uh, to civilwartr at aol.com will get you a copy of one of my books if you're interested and will help support the website and also the uh, the book fund for the show. So not tax deductible. I'm not actually bound to do anything good with the money, but but I try to do try to do good with it. Well, let's bring our uh, guest, and I'm, I'm delighted to welcome today's guest to the show. Uh, Dr. Mark E. Neely, Jr. is, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, the McCabe Greer Professor of Civil War History at Penn State University, uh, author of The Fate of Liberty, a Pulitzer Prize-winning study of uh, civil liberties during the Civil War, and has uh, a new book, uh, has a new book regularly, but the one we've got today is Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation. Uh, Mark, are you there? I am. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. How are you? Good. It Good. is. Uh, uh, I, I'm delighted to have you. I've, I've played phone tag with you for several years, uh, uh, trying to to make this happen, and, and it's a real pleasure and an honor to uh, uh, to have you here. Some of our guests may uh, remember me commenting in the past. You were the uh, historian uh, before I was at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and those were uh, enormous uh, metaphorical uh, shoes to fill. And uh, you were very generous in helping me get started in the the Lincoln world back uh, almost, I guess, 20 years ago now. Uh, So I I really appreciate having you join me here today. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. So uh, uh, you and I chatted uh, a little bit as we were setting this up about the uh, the, the issues with history departments uh, here and there. Uh, everybody has them. Uh, I'm curious to ask: Have you ever do you ever think back on museum days and, and think uh, the museum historian's lot is superior to that of, of the uh, the history professors, or or the other way around? No, I don't think about it that way, but I do think about it, and what I'm most grateful for in that background is that if you work in a museum, you get a chance to handle materials that most of the historians in university historic history departments don't handle, lithographs, engravings, uh, artifacts, uh, campaign ephemera, um, pamphlets, uh, songsters, <laughs> and uh, I've always had a, a a lingering fondness for those materials, and a sort of respect for what they can tell you about history. And that's the for me that's the important legacy of of having worked in a museum, and makes my approach to the subject sometimes I think a, a little different from what other historians do. Well, you've you've drawn on things like you mentioned lithographs, uh, the way people uh, decorated their their parlors with material that, that's more overtly political sometimes than than we might do today, uh, and and use those to get insights into how people related to to the government, uh, which you, you might not get through traditional sources, just trying to read people's letters or even newspapers. Yeah, that's right, and uh, uh, it's good for political history. Alas, uh, it's not very helpful in constitutional history. In fact, when I was 
uh, asked uh, very uh, at a time when I was rushing against some hectic deadlines, and I was asked by the press to stop and recommend some illustrations. And I think a little with a little bit more short, a little short-tempered <laughs> under the circumstances, I. I, I said, uh, you know, uh, I can't think of any illustrations for constitutional history. Military history has to have them. Mm-hmm. You can't do it without maps. Uh, but constitutional history, it uh, it seems to me, is uh, um, really not much enhanced by illustration, and I told him I wouldn't do it. Well, I, I, you made a good choice, I will say. This book, and if any listeners are already thinking, you know, constitutional history, you know, spare me. Um, it, it's a fascinating book, and uh, it, I was telling my wife the other day after a, a hard day at the office, all kinds of turmoil in the department, and I said, reading this book, it's like, you know, having a, a friend in the room, uh, you know, I can hear your voice in it. Uh, it it's very readable and, and approachable for such a uh, possibly complex and challenging topic. And it wouldn't be aided any by illustrations. It, it tells its own story. Uh, but in terms of, of sources, I think that's an interesting point about how, how you can't use you know, the, the lithographs don't help so much, but you did find a, a source that other historians have really not tapped into uh, uh, for constitutional history. Uh, could you talk about that? Well, I uh, I can't lay any claim to uh, having... Uh, there's, this book is not based on archival discovery. I have a mm-hmm. great respect for books that are based on archival discovery, they're very hard to write in the Lincoln field, of course, <laughs> and most of us have been working with the same uh, documents for uh, well over a hundred years, and, and pretty much all the same documents for everyone since the opening of the Abraham Lincoln Papers at the Library of Congress in the 1940s. And uh, so uh, I don't have ambitions uh, to have archival discovery, but I did have uh, a particular appreciation uh, because of the subject matter uh, for the political pamphlet. Mm-hmm. I've long thought that pamphlets were, if I had to point to one artifact that represented the political culture of the much of the 19th century, and certainly the middle of the 19th century, I, I would point to the a pamphlet. Uh, it is testimony to a period in our political history when the national attention span was a little longer than it is now. Uh, and uh, so the pamphlet gave uh, politicians and uh, lawyers and all the sorts of people who thought they had something to say on mainly on political subjects. Uh, it gave them plenty of room to construct an argument, more room than the, than the abundant political press was going to allow uh, in, a, you know, in the columns of their papers uh, daily or weekly. And uh, I, I found that it was particularly useful. I think it was particularly useful to the people during the Civil War for constitutional arguments, and I would point specifically to the rich constitutional debate that took place in Philadelphia among 
Philadelphia lawyers, if I can use the phrase, mm-hmm. uh, over uh, the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Uh, a, a very substantial number of pamphlets uh, published there. Uh, the leader in um, defending Lincoln's suspension of the writ of habeas corpus was a Philadelphia uh, lawyer, uh, Horace Benny, and his pamphlets, which defended the president's uh, otherwise uh, very controversial I and mean, to most lawyers, uh, I mean, to many lawyers, indefensible uh, suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Uh, Benny weighed in and defended it, and a very substantial number of lawyers in Philadelphia answered it. And so that kind of pamphlet literature that that's, uh, uh, that that argues about the Constitution, about political questions, about statesmanship, about war, uh, at about 30 pages of length, uh, maybe 15, maybe 45, uh, I found to be um, uh, the appropriate voice of the political culture of the middle of the 19th century and as useful as anything for me in writing about the constitutional conflicts in that period. So I, I was curious about that the the length that you just expressed there. So that that really does give room to lay out some arguments. Who were these pamphlets for sale, and who bought them? Uh, well, yeah, well, that's of course to go back to your original question about the lingering effects of having worked in a museum uh-huh. on us. Uh, well, you know, these items of political culture, we can tell. You can interpret the symbols in them, and they're interesting, uh, and you can talk about them in that way. But the sixty-four dollar question is: What was their use? Mm-hmm. Uh, did they get used in the home? Uh, were they were they sold commercially or promoted by political parties? Were they even published by political parties? And and it, like all the great questions in history, it's extremely difficult to answer. Uh, but they, you can find them for sale. Uh, in listed in the advertising sections of newspapers at the time, so you can find out what their price is, maybe a quarter, and uh, and you can find out where they were sold. Sometimes at booksellers, or sometimes at the local party headquarters. It varied, but those are the best clues I have to their uses. There are occasional mentions of them in correspondence in the period, and certainly one pamphlet answers another, uh, and th- you know then that at least that pamphleteer was um, prompted by uh, a pamphlet that uh, he read and uh, usually objected to. So so people did use these, and they argued issues like, like you mentioned, habeas corpus. But, Mark, what we'll do now is take a short break. We'll come back and talk about uh, uh, we'll start with the question of nationalism and just what a nation is. Uh, so, give you a moment to think about that. We're going to take a short break. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Mark E. Neely Jr. This is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market 
Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Mark E. Neely, Jr. He's the author of Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation, Constitutional Conflict in the American Civil War. Uh, it's a book that looks at how the Constitution uh, shaped in some ways the war efforts, or how those who conducted the war, both in the North and the South, with a different but similar constitution, uh, were either uh, aided or hampered by uh, constitutional uh, provisions in, in what they tried to do. Uh, Mark, the, the title of the book, Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation, uh, raises the question about uh, a nation. There are cliches about the Civil War that the United States was, uh, you know, became a nation in in the war. And if, if one is to talk about that, it makes sense to start with, with definitions. And you have some interesting discussion at the beginning of your book about what uh, what we are to think of, of nations or, or nationalism in particular. Uh, uh, let me throw out the the comment you take from uh, uh, from Benedict Anderson that, that many historians regard the concept of nationalism as inherently evil, uh, as, as pathological. Um, you don't see it that way. Well, I, I don't see it that way because the Benedict Anderson, through his wonderful book, Imagine Communities, taught me not to see it that way. This book did begin a long time back. Uh, as a book on nationalism, and it was inspired by Benedict Anderson's Imagine Communities, mm-hmm. um, which, to tell you the truth, I read for the first time um, on a stationary bicycle. <laughs> I was uh, I was uh, had injured and unable to play tennis, which I played quite a bit, and uh, so I took to exercising on a stationary bicycle, which is extremely boring. And uh, <laughs> but you can read. And so I, I took to reading while I was doing it, and uh, people had been telling me I must read uh, Benedict Anderson's book, and, I, and so that's in that period that I read it. And, and I, I remember the, the day I came across the passage in his book, uh, the pages were wrinkled with, with perspiration, <laughs> and, uh, but where he said, you know, that 20th century 
particularly intellectuals, but that 20th century people uh, tend to think uh, of nationalism as a near pathology. But uh, nationalism wasn't any such thing in the 19th century. It inspired uh, poetry and literature and sacrifice. And I read that sentence, and that's when I realized that for years I had been framing questions about the about the Lincoln's period, about Abraham Lincoln himself. I had been framing them uh, uh, in an erroneous fashion, uh, and I had uh, always thought that nationalism and liberation were sort of in competition with each other. Uh, and uh, when I read that, I realized that uh, that wasn't right, and that in the 19th century and in Lincoln's mind, uh, nationalism was not a, a near pathology. And so I set out to write a book about nationalism. Along the way, along the way, what had even greater influence with me was my teaching. When I came to Penn State, I was uh, able to teach constitutional history uh, to 1877. It's my favorite course. I like to teach it better than I like teaching the Civil War, even. Uh, and I got uh, ever more interested in uh, constitutional history and had developed uh, some ways of discussing and um, making what I hoped making constitutional questions accessible uh, in the course that I, I, that I wanted to put in the book. So in the end, the book, I guess, is a little schizophrenic. It's partly about nationalism, but mostly about constitutional history. And that's because of the peculiar history of the book itself. Well, they, the two come together in uh, your discussion of Lincoln's first inaugural address, because he really has to define their... Uh, what the nation is and why it is not acceptable for seven, uh, at that time, southern states to secede from the nation. And it's it's not a question, as, as you point out uh, rightly throughout, that, that just because Lincoln was a lawyer, he didn't think about big constitutional questions regularly. Uh, lawyers don't typically have to do that on a daily basis. But as president, he did have to define what made what what defined the United States, and uh, you know, how, how does Lincoln come come to that? And, and did people agree with him? Well, uh, how, if I can give a sort of longish answer to this, uh, I would Absolutely. say uh, I was interested in how Lincoln came to his constitutional ideas, and uh, I know you're a lawyer, and I hate to say this, but <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, um, I. When I was looking at their sources, I thought about, well, what, what are Lincoln's essential constitutional ideas? Well, nationalism, and where did that come from? Well, it didn't come from a place. It came from a time. Uh, we think of Lincoln as born on the frontier, and that's correct, but we also need to think of what time. Uh, he was born, which is 1809. It means that he's six years old at the end of the War of 1812 and 1815, and that his formative years come at the in the age of American nationalism when uh, people in the United States realized that they essentially lost this war and that there was no nation without infrastructure there was no nation without banks uh, there was no nation 
without economic development. You couldn't pay troops. You couldn't uh, send them on roads. And you couldn't arm them without manufacturers. And, uh, and the country had to be developed nationally. And Lincoln, I think, imbibed nationalism in his early youth. And so that's what set him on the road to being against secession. Uh, his other two essential constitutional ideas one of them came from the Whig Party, uh, and that was a result of where he was born, on the frontier, and because of his hard scrabble youth. And the effects, uh, which I think and I've always thought were best described by what I think is the best Lincoln book published in my generation, and that's Gabor Boric's Lincoln and the Economics of the American Dream. But Lincoln, by uh, growing up on the uh, uh, on hard scrabble farms, the son of an illiterate father, uh, and but being ambitious and wanting to uh, escape it, that the economic development platform of the Whig Party was really existential for him. It's not a party question. Uh, he needs a bank loan. He needs transportation to get off the frontier, uh, and so it, by adopting the economic development platform of the Whig. Party, Lincoln's, uh, that's another of his essential constitutional ideas comes from that, because after all, uh, uh, if you believe that the national government should support and sponsor economic development and roads and canals and banks, nothing in the Constitution says that Congress has the power to establish a bank or a road or a canal, and naturally you become a broad constructionist. And Lincoln was. That's a sort of second distinguishing feature. And then the third, of course, was what he took from the anti-slavery movement. And the anti-slavery movement was, of course, a terrible... uh, I mean, the Constitution was a terrible problem for the anti-slavery movement because um, slavery, though not by name, is mentioned in the Constitution three times in the Three-Fifths Compromise on Representation in the provision uh, preventing the abolition of the international slave trade for 20 years, and then finally in the notorious fugitive slave law. Um, And so the anti-slavery movement, to cope with it, uh, interpreted the Constitution this way. They said, well, the founders did not mention slavery by name. Instead, they used cumbersome euphemisms like persons held to service or labor. And that this meant that the founders were actually ashamed of slavery, and that they looked forward to a day when it would disappear under this very Constitution. And Lincoln believed that. And so from that, then, he took what I'd say was his third essential uh, constitutional uh, idea, and that is that the Constitution is basically a liberal document, not a bastion of slavery. And he also harked back to the Declaration repeatedly uh, and sort of end run around the Constitution. And, And he thinks that of course, that that's the, that he sees the the Constitution to his mind is a fulfillment of the Declaration of Independence, not as some Constitutional historians would say later, a reaction against the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> but instead, it's a fulfillment of the Declaration of Independence and uh, looks forward to the brighter day when there will be no slavery. And so, for him, it's not so much an impediment; it's a liberal document. And the, what surprised me. I'm always, what I really like about writing books is the surprises that you encounter while you write them. And, uh, you know, in the end, I, I looked up from this and I said, 
well, all of Lincoln's constitutional ideas he had before he ever set foot in a courtroom. And they that therefore his law practice and what he knew about the uh, law from everyday activity in Illinois were of no particular use to him as president and didn't prepare him in much of any way uh, to handle these constitutional questions. And, of course, the other thing I discovered, which is I'm still coping with right now, is how many of Lincoln's essential ideas and attitudes stem from his very early life. And these things were set and influential right through his presidency, which, if you think about it, is not really the way Lincoln is uh, written about in modern biographies. Typically, he's written about from the standpoint of being a person who is capable of growth. And it's true, he could grow. But what I came to be surprised at when I finished this book and put it down, I looked and I said, well, it's what's remarkable to me is he didn't have to grow very much. Well, that brings up a question that... that it's sort of off the topic a little bit, but if he absorbed these attitudes at an early age, and if especially his, his upbringing on the frontier led him toward the Whig platform, toward self-improvement and internal improvements that would make economic development possible, um, why was he so so alone in this? Why were most frontier men uh, Democrats? Why, did, why were they Jacksonians? And he, why didn't they all support the Whig platform? Well, I, I guess I wouldn't say they were all Jacksonians. Well, no. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, but a majority, certainly, in, uh, in Illinois. Well, certainly a majority in Illinois, which is, of course, what has uh, always given us that false impression that Lincoln is somehow, somehow a failure in his early political mm-hmm. career. He wasn't a failure. He was a great success, but he was just mm-hmm. a great success in a minority party in Illinois. Right. Um, and uh, so I... I you know, you're asking almost a a psychological question, and I can't entirely answer it. But I think if you look at Lincoln's life, uh, and I'm not the first one or only one by any means to uh, see this, is one of the distinguishing features of his early life is that one of the first things he sees about himself is that he's ambitious, and the rest of the people around him aren't. Uh, his family isn't, uh, and uh, uh, and it seemed like to him the uh, the rest of the people around him weren't ambitious, and and he is, and so uh, all I can say is that in the case of Abraham Lincoln, uh, who has this ambition and who sees it and who talks about it in an era when almost sort of unseemly to talk about your personal ambition, uh, political ambition was uh, basically meant putting your party's interest or your personal interest ahead of the interest of the commonwealth. That's sort of what ambition meant then, but nevertheless he talked about it. And uh, so for a person like that, uh, these were, I think, the natural, available constitutional ideas. An interesting thing about them is they're all intellectual ideas and when we think of nationalism, for some people it conjures up sort of flag-waving or it conjures up a, a kind of organic nationalism where your your country is 
the country because of its history and tradition and language and religion and culture and all these things you have no control over. You're just born into. And uh, I'm struck by Lincoln's, what you, you've cited here, all, all these reasons why the United States and its Constitution are uh, are worthy of, of loyalty and, and even love uh, in Lincoln's view. That it, it's because of the ideals in them. Uh, I, I don't recall if you mentioned the, the, the speech in Chicago in 1858 when he talks about how uh, immigrants are just as much Americans as anyone else as long as they sign on to the values of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it's not where you're born, but what you think that makes you American. And that, that distinguishes from maybe the pathological nationalisms of the 20th century that have led to so much trouble. Oh, it's, that certainly does distinguish it, and it's a distinguishing mark of Lincoln's um, national ideas. And, you know, you've pointed to another uh, distinguishing characteristic uh, in a way, and that is that um, he's both a patriot mm-hmm. and uh, and a nationalist. That is, if you, if you think, I, I think of patriotism as being uh, the... Um, um, sort of visceral and uh, 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 emotional uh, side of the coin, and that then there's another side of the coin which explains what a nation is and why it ought to be revered. And he was turned out to be great at that, and he turned out to be great at at, at that in this uh, surprising way that he has of being a, a quick study. I, I remember I, I was amazed when I read this a letter that he wrote on December 17, 1860, when he, he wrote this letter, and it was in response to a letter from Thurlow Weed, uh, William H. Stewart's right-hand man. He was a person Lincoln had to answer if he asked him a question. Lincoln's president-elect. And uh, Weed writes him and asks him some questions. Among them, what is his view on secession? And Lincoln writes back and says, I don't think you can find anything on secession in any of my previous speeches. So we think of a man destined to be president during the Civil War and to face down secession and to come up with arguments in the first inaugural address for why secession is a very bad idea. And, well, he came up with them awfully fast. Uh, between December 17th, which, incidentally, how fast was it? Well, December 17th is the day, of course, at the South Carolina Secession Convention, Convenes. So on the day uh, that the South Carolina Secession Convention uh, starts its dangerous work, uh, Lincoln can say honestly that not not exactly that he hadn't thought about it, but that he hadn't said anything in public about it. But he has to say something in public about it pretty soon. And so between that date and uh, in March, when he gives his first inaugural address, he comes up with uh, a model argument for. American nationalism under the Constitution, and one that's uh, proved to be very um, uh, um, very persuasive, I think, uh, since his day. But it's interesting to see that the difference between, uh, there are some differences between patriotism and this kind of uh, systematic spelling out of what nationalism is. Lincoln's first inaugural address, which I think gives a surprisingly original and long-lasting arguments for a perpetual union 
that part of the speech was uh, hardly noticed. Most people wanted, all they wanted to hear from Lincoln's inaugural address was <clears throat> whether he was going to invade the South or mm-hmm. risk war by reinforcing for some. It was, is it peace or war? That's what they want to know. And they didn't really hear the rest of that. Or, and it's been mostly appreciated to the degree it's been appreciated, his arguments. They've been appreciated uh, by historians and uh, later. Uh, but at the time, people had already made up their minds about the nation. They, 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 they knew it was a nation and that they liked it. They just wanted to know if they had to go to war for it or not. <laughs> and you also point out uh, something that other historians have not looked at, which is uh, Frederick Douglass's response to the uh, inaugural. Douglass is the only commentator who points out that no one, no one either the critics or, or Lincoln, spends any time on the elephant in the room, which is slavery. Uh, that, that's absent. But we're going to take another short break now, and I promised last time, and I'll keep it this time, we'll talk uh, about the habeas corpus issue when we return. We're talking with Mark E. Neely, Jr., author of Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Mark E. Neely, Jr., author of Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation, Constitutional Conflict in the American Civil War. We've been talking about uh, the, the concept of the nation and Lincoln's understanding of it and the need to keep it together to uh, uh, resist secession, as expressed in the first inaugural address. Uh, this book is uh, uh, worth far more than an hour's discussion, and uh, I'll say it again at the hour, but listeners, you'll want to get a copy of uh, this book, Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation. It's very thought-provoking and will uh, challenges a lot of traditional uh, assumptions about constitutional issues in the war, uh, one of which is the, the battle over habeas corpus. Uh, it's in the news today in the, the, the form of uh, indefinite uh, detainment of, of, uh, uh, of people captured in war. Uh, in this case, uh, in the Civil War, of course, it was uh, the suspension of the, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus meant that uh, citizens no longer could go to a judge uh, or have their lawyer go to a judge and ask the government to explain why somebody had been detained, why had they been arrested. Uh, it's a, a precious right in Anglo-American uh, jurisprudence. You can't be held without being charged. Uh, but if that 
writ is suspended, as it was by uh, both Lincoln and uh, uh, Jefferson Davis during the war, you can be held indefinitely without being charged with anything, and you can't defend yourself because you're not accused of anything. You're just stuck. Uh, Lincoln suspends the writ, as everyone listening to the show already knows, and has to uh, defend his actions. Uh, the most famous defense that, that most people reading about the war come across is the the letter where he, he says, must I shoot a simple-minded uh, soldier boy, but not touch a hair on the head of the wily agitator who induces him to desert? Uh, Lincoln doesn't want to do that. Uh, but Mark, you you mentioned that argument, but there's much more to Lincoln's defense, particularly where he finds the authority to uh, uh, to suspend the writ. Well, I I guess that my initial statement on this would be that when I step back from the book and I think about what I wrote in it about the writ of habeas corpus, and I think in some ways what I've done is to uh, say that there's a mythical, there's a kind of myth of the writ of habeas corpus. You know, you, you yourself described it as this precious right. It's ordinarily, uh, conventionally described as the great writ of liberty. And mm-hmm. so it is. But on the other hand, a writ, after all, was an order by a judge. And if the judge is a Democrat, um, while a Republican administration is running a war, well, then the writ is, well, not necessarily quite what we think of today. And what surprised me when I looked into the question in this book was the um, degree to which the writ of habeas corpus in the Civil War wasn't at all what we think of as uh, uh, being what it is today. So, um, in other words, I guess, I, I couldn't, but my hunch is that the most frequent use of the writ of habeas corpus uh, during the Civil War uh, was not to protect dissenters, um, uh, but to facilitate reluctant soldiers to leave the ranks of the Union Army. And it boiled down, which after all, you'll think, if you think these people haven't been detained by the government, they volunteered to be in the Army. People don't volunteer to be in jail, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's what we think of the writ as doing, is freeing you from jail when you've been unjustifiably arrested. But in fact, its most common use, I believe, during the Civil War, came in the case of underage soldiers. There were substantial numbers, very great numbers, I, I suspect, of underage soldiers in the Civil War. It, you couldn't enlist if you were under 18 unless you had the permission of your parents. But, of course, older brothers enlisted, and and then younger brothers thought it looked like a glorious thing to do, uh, e- even if they were underage, or perhaps uh, they were underage and wanted to leave the abusive father on the farm. Whatever the case, substantial numbers of underage soldiers enlisted. Well, then when they got in, it turned out that the military life was not quite as glorious as it had looked, nor farm work quite as hard as it had seemed, and they had second thoughts. So the soldier, if he could get a lawyer 
to get rid of habeas corpus, or if the father discovered the son who had left the farm, uh, could get a rid of habeas corpus from a judge. The judge would bring the uh, soldier into court, and if uh, it could be proved that when he was enlisted, he was under 18, the judge could free him from the army, as though uh, he were in a jail. And uh, the the uh, so it was said that America, which at the time, and I think still does, uh, America had the most powerful judiciary on earth, uh, and it had a judiciary that could stop armies in their tracks. In other words, you know, a judge could demand that a commanding officer bring in some soldier that he is illegally detaining because he was underage when he enlisted. I don't know that that ever happened, but that's the idea. And so uh, the the uh, the army uh, fought these uh, cases tooth and nail. Uh, their view was that once a soldier was in the army, basically. N- he was going to leave it in a coffin or after the war was over. Uh, but they didn't like the idea, I think, of soldiers gaming the system once they're in the Army, uh, t- trying to get out by some legal maneuver. And the Lincoln administration uh, thought this very hard as well. And so uh, uh, and uh, there's a whole chapter in the book on this uh, uh, question of uh, they were called infant soldiers because <laughs> they were underage in the in the law and uh, a, a lot of it focuses on the judges and their uh, attempts to if they were democratic judges their willingness to go along with this it was incidentally a a a, a, a libertarian legacy in America partly because in the formative era of our law, much of it occurred during the War of 1812, and in the War of 1812, uh, the federal, the Federalist judiciary in New England was very, uh, did not like the war at all, and was uh, liberal in releasing underage soldiers, so the precedents were all on the side of uh, state and federal judges alike being able to release soldiers from the service. So that's a kind of problem that the writ of habeas corpus posed to the administration and to the Union War effort that I think we don't uh, think of today. And uh, that, well, anyway, I try to deal with that question. Well, that's a fascinating aspect of the book. It ties in with what you wrote in in The Fate of Liberty, where you uh, start out by addressing the question of the the, the mythical 13,000 arbitrary arrests during the war. And, and of course, you went and looked to see where that number came from, and it, it just sort of came from other people making up, you know, citing other people. But uh, but most of the arbit- so-called arbitrary arrests that you you found tended to be of actual uh, criminals or, or people at least carrying on guerrilla warfare against the government in, in Missouri or Kentucky. And in that sense, it was the, the number of arbitrary arrests of political dissenters was quite small. And here, again, uh, in this book, you show that the the writ is not used for dissenters primarily, but for these these young soldiers. I, it's also interesting that the, the judges, did you say the Democratic judges are willing to go along, but in general, the, the uh, 
judiciary does support the war effort, which uh, in in just a few minutes we have remaining, I, I want to ask you about the Southern Constitution uh, and the fact that that you you likewise find in the South that, that the traditional view of uh, of opposition and of judges and newspaper editors and everybody else resisting the central government uh, is perhaps overstated. Well, I, you know, I think one of the, I think, well, what surprised me again is when I thought about, well, the Constitution didn't, uh, well, I wouldn't even say survive the test of civil war. The way I look at it is that, you know, I write about Abraham Lincoln, but the real hero of my books of late is the Constitution of the United States. And I think it's a mistake to think of the Constitution as a problem. Uh, you know, James G. Randall's mm-hmm. uh, essential book, uh, uh, Constitutional Problems Under Lincoln, which we uh, still must use today and is a, is a great book, but it's left one uh, legacy that I dislike, and it, it's in its title only. And it's left us with the idea that the Constitution was a problem. Well, it wasn't a problem for the Lincoln administration in many respects. In many respects, it was an asset. The Constitution made Abraham Lincoln, was, it made him president for four years, and since the war almost exactly coincided with his administration, that meant there was a determined Republican uh, in the White House that was going to fight to use all the resources of the North to uh, combat the Confederacy until March of 1865. It was clear that the president was the commander-in-chief, and both of those provisions are um, in uh, Article 2, Sections 1 and 2. And those were as important as anything else, I think, in winning the Civil War for the North, because it meant that occasional defeats and... Uh, calls from the press or the public for a change in administration, which would have been effective in a parliamentary system, mm-hmm. uh, have uh, no effect at all on Lincoln. Uh, and he can wait and choose another commander until he wins. This is very, I mean, Jefferson Davis knew the United States Constitution just as well as Lincoln did, and he knew that a determined anti-slavery Republican was going to fight him at least until March of 1865, and that took away the South's greatest military advantage. Um, you know, military, armed, sort of armchair military historians wonder, well, why does the South squander, why does the Confederacy squander its great advantage of the, de- of the defensive? Well, Jefferson Davis cannot turn around uh, to, the, to public opinion in the Confederacy and say, well, um, it's, it's true that they're throwing everything at us now and uh, bombarding and attacking us, but if you just hang on for four years in March 1865, <laughs> if Lincoln loses, why then? You just can't do that. And Jefferson no. David didn't do it. He had to do something. And so what he did was invade the North with disastrous consequences at Antietam and then later in Gettysburg. And so the Constitution explains a lot. But what struck me then when, when I wrote this book is that the Confederate Constitution, which in war make, in its war-making aspects, the part we've just been talking about, is uh, the, um, copied word for word from the United States Constitution, that the Constitution, so this sort of cousin of the United States Constitution, uh, served the Confederacy adequately as well under extreme state rights interpretation. State rights was an essential part of Confederate nationalism, and it was embraced by the Confederate judiciary. I mean, I think any Confederate judge, when he 
sat down to write an opinion, thought of himself as being a protector of that distinguishing quality of what they thought of as the Confederate nation, and that was state rights. And that, and so even under assumptions like this, uh, the Constitution didn't hold back the Confederate war effort. Conscription was upheld uh, by the state courts in the Confederacy, and, uh, and Richmond itself, ironically, uh, I describe uh, R- Richmond uh, as a, 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 almost a police state uh, because it was constantly uh, threatened by Union armies and uh, therefore under when the writ was suspended in the Confederacy and under various uh, 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 provisions that became customary like a passport system for travel um, the the Confederate capital was very highly regulated uh, and so under the same, roughly the same Constitution, the Confederacy found enough leeway, even under extreme state rights interpretation, to muster uh, a uh, a mammoth war effort. Well, that that is again a challenge both to those who who argue that the Confederacy died of states' rights uh, and was too too disjointed, and those who argue that it was that they introduced uh, state socialism, that, that the states had no power, that, that Richmond ran everything, and you, you challenge both of those in this book. Mark, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I enjoyed this book thoroughly, and it was a pleasure talking with you again. Well, thanks. I enjoyed the conversation. And listeners, you will not want to miss uh, Lincoln and the Triumph of the Nation, Constitutional Conflict in the American Civil War by Mark E. Neely, Jr. Uh, it, it is... Uh, if anything could make this subject interesting for non-lawyers, uh, can't speak for lawyers, uh, we already like this stuff, but if anyone else, uh, it, it's the right book, uh, you'll want to read it. Uh, so again, Mark, thank you, and listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.